and welcome to the very first episode of The Interviews from These Three Media. Each week, join me, Ian Barstow, Damien Lee and Darren Antrobus as we talk to interesting people with really interesting stories to tell. Coming up in this season of The Interviews, we have, so far... Interviews from Simon Dunn, we've got Bob Builders, Chrissy Rock, Stevie Ritchie, Justine Riddick and many more. All of those coming up over the next few weeks. But first, from me, an interview with Lord Michael Cashman. Make sure I am recording. Oh, let, let, me, let me turn my front door buzzer off. Okay, yeah, no problem. Phone lines out, door buzzers off. <laughs> so, hello, welcome to this episode of The Interviews, and I am very happy today to be joined by Lord Michael Cashman. Um, hello. Uh, is it Lord, or is it Michael, or...? It's, it's Michael. I'm still <laughs> waiting for them in the House of Lords to tap me on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, could you come outside? We met the other Lord Cashman. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to the uh, to the interviews, um, and thank you so much for for joining us um, today. First of all, you've got your your paperback version of your um, your memoirs is is out now. Mm-hmm. By the time this this goes out, um, and it's called One of Them from Albert Square to Parliament Square. Um, so, really, when did you decide to re- to write that memoir? And um, did you do it? in sort of like one big, I'm going to give myself six months to do it, or was it a long-term process of stuff that you've been writing down for years that you've put together? Ian, it's interesting because um, I, I wanted uh, about 15 years ago to write uh, what they call an autobiography, really, um, because I've had such a, a, a varied and amazing life, and, and most of it, by chance. Um, and, and, and so I, I started on those long train journeys I used to take going to the European Parliament. Um, and um, I, I, I didn't really get anywhere. It, they were ramblings. Um, and then when um, Paul, my, my late husband, died, um, I knew I wanted to put my life down on paper. I had to record it. Um, and so I just set out to write it. I gave myself uh, a few months, um, and I was so fortunate in that uh, the second draft uh, my agent sent to Bloomsbury, and uh, and something happened there. They, they first of all said we don't think it's for us, and then Alexandra Pringle, the editor in chief, called me in four months later and said we can't stop thinking about your memoir. So if we asked you, would you do a, 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 some, a, another draft? And that was manna from heaven, if an atheist can say that. <laughs> um, because suddenly you're given a space in which somebody wants you to create rather than you just creating. And when I say create, that's exactly what you do because all of the memory is there. And, and interestingly, in your question, part of the answer is there. I went back to diaries, I went back to notes, which I'd kept, and reflections, which I kept over the years. Um, But I went back after a couple of drafts to check the veracity of them. Um, and, uh, uh, and, And when I say create, you have to have the courage to let go. You can't be prescriptive, you've got to sit down and know that there's a part of your life you want to examine and let the writing do it for you. So, um, uh, and that's why I have to say, hand on heart, uh, I absolutely stand by uh, every single word uh, of this memoir. The outrageousness, the, the, the darkness, the sadness, the vivacity, um, I stand by it all. And um, I've been so lucky to... Uh, to have the publisher uh, that, that, that I've got. Is there anyone that you, um, that was included in the autobiography that you had to pre-warn that the, this particular story or this particular episode was going to appear in, in it? And, and did any of them sort of go, yeah, can we, um, can you yeah, perhaps change, uh, edit slightly? <laughs> you know, there was only 
uh, one person. Uh, and, and that wasn't because of the outrageousness, of, although there's you know, quite a few outrageous things in there. <laughs> um, uh, and that was Ian McKellen. I said to Ian, I said, come on, you feature so much in this book. Have a read of it. And if there's anything you don't like, um, I'll take it out, maybe. And he came back to me and he said, I wouldn't ask you to alter a word, not one single word, and then wrote a lovely uh, thing for the cover, um, called it a, me a memoir to cherish. Um, and because in the end, you, you've got to be fairly brutal. Otherwise, you, 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 Alan Akeborn, who I worked with when I, I wrote a play for him to direct, he gave me a brilliant piece of advice, which is you can never write by committee. Um, you, you've it's got to be from the heart, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and it does mean that you, 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 you might upset people, and there are people who think they should have been included, uh, and people who wish they hadn't, or viewed it differently. And that's the other interesting thing, um, which is two people can be in the same meeting and leave, and each have a different perception yeah. about that meeting. So, uh, so I, I hope I've dealt with it fairly uh, and honestly, but some of those who did some terrible things to me uh, are named. Which is, um, I think that's some reason, sometimes why people like autobiographies, because they don't, we see a, we see a persona from the, from the public. Mm. So people will know you from, um, from EastEnders and from your, from your political work, but we don't know the, we don't know the, the details of what goes on and that's i think a good biography because some you read and you just think I, they weren't written by the person <laughs> it's, yes. it's, it's all yeah. third hand um and just some of them are like you almost want them just to go that little bit further to make it a bit more this is what this is a, this is why i am the person i am and they sort of skip over bits i think some people have um I mean, developing that that line, some people have been amazed at how honest I have been. Two, two days ago, I had a text message from the, the, the partner of, of a, a really good friend, and she said, I finally, finally read your book. Uh, I, I couldn't put it down. And she said, I can't remember uh, when a book last affected me as much as this. And, I, and, and I, I think when you look at the public persona, you, you have to know what that person's been through because what I'm trying to say in the book is that no matter what happens to you in life, you can become yourself. You can. Um, and part of that was, uh, you know, undoing the darkness um, uh, and allowing myself to be loved. I didn't think I could be loved. Um, and finding someone and going through the most amazing relationship, that was problematic in itself. <laughs> but and developing our own space. And again, that's another recurring theme for me. Claim your space in the world and not the space that is loaned to you by being somebody that you're not. Yeah. Which I think as a, um, as a gay person, I think, we, I think every gay person goes through a very similar journey in the fact that when you first realise yourself that you're a gay person and then you accept that yourself and then you go through the whole thing of the, the coming out, the telling everybody, the... Um, and then sort of literally it's like, I remember when I came out, it was like a massive weight just gone off the shoulders. Yes. Um, and you just sort of go, this is who I am. And for once I can actually be who I am rather than half the person that I am yes. because it's, you're hiding it. It's exactly, it's exactly that half the person that I am hiding. And, and you know what? People are aware that something is being hidden. Yes. Ian McKellen said, you know, um, before he became famous for Gandalf and all of that, in the mid-80s, when um, Margaret Thatcher was pushing, the Conservative government of, of Margaret Thatcher was pushing through the first anti-lesbian uh, and gay law in a hundred years. Um, and, uh, and Ian decided to come out. Uh, but people said to him, no, 
don't, don't come out, you'll lose your career. And Ian said, when he came out, he said, it was like the scales falling away. And you know what? He became a better actor because he could allow people right the way in yeah. and not part of the way in. And the other thing, again, something you just said about coming out, coming out to yourself, so important. Sometimes we come out to ourselves and we need a lot longer before we come out to others. But coming out to yourself is an amazing leap forward. And also what most people don't realize is you have to come out repeatedly. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, because people, it's changing, but people make assumptions. Um, and I remember, this shows you, if I'm, going, if I'm going on too long, tell me to shut up. But I went, <laughs> I went to Pembroke College, uh, Cambridge, sat at high table, um, Chris Smith, Lord Smith, uh, the first openly uh, gay member of uh, Parliament. Um, he, he's the master of Pembroke. And on high table, you're sat there, and you, the man on my left said, so where do you live? And I told him where I lived. And he said, oh, uh, did you move there with your lady wife? <laughs> and I said, no, I moved there with my uh, husband, who died uh, some years, a few years ago. He said, oh, very good. He said, I've just moved in with my husband to a new place. But, and I thought, brilliant. <laughs> the days of... Um, you know, he was being polite, but the days of um, that heterosexual convention always having to be respected, no, we can respect love in all of its different forms. And I think people don't even realise it in it, but even if I, I remember I phoned up, I think it was Sky Television, um, and as they, they have their chatter when they're trying to sell you something, can they go, oh, and does your wife like movies? And you think, mm -hmm. no, but my partner does. Yeah. <laughs> Not husband, but not husband yet, but my partner does. It's, it's interesting you say that because uh, a, a journalist recently said to me, um, what, what, what is the, the thing that really excites you about equality? Um, and, I, uh, and I said, well, a lot of people don't have it. You know, trans women, trans men, trans teenagers um, uh, amongst them. I said, but you know what was, I said is brilliant? I said, when the difference is taken out of the equation, I said, and the other day, watching television, watching The Chase, uh, and this woman said, oh, I knew the answer to that question because my husband is interested in blah, blah, blah. And the, um, uh, and the, the man that she was in competition with, uh, whatever they call it, uh, I, I can't, but he said, yeah, I wish my husband uh, was into that kind of subject. And I thought, that. <laughs> is when we've arrived because yeah. five thirty, ITV, somebody just talks about their husband, and it's it, it, it's normal and ordinary and brilliant. But we are still. I, there was a story um, about Cadbury's cream egg, mm -hmm. um, their advert, and they had two men. Um, eating the egg from each other or something. I've not seen the advert, but I've read that. And it got 190-odd complaints or something because people were, were disgusted by two men um, being on screen together. And it's like, we've, we've come a long way, but we've, got a, we've still got quite a long way to, to go. Well, the, the, the enemies of equality never, never go away. Um, they move on, I think, a lot of it. They, they move on to another, sub, another yes. minority to... Right, we've lost our fight with that almost. We're going to move on now, particularly at the moment, trans, yes. trans rights and trans people. But yeah. they, re they return because yes. we look down through the millennia um, and, uh, and they return and they return, uh, at, but they return in different ways. Their attack becomes different. Um, I'm not attacking you because you're a different kind of that minority. And as they misrepresent uh, the trans community, they, they hold up the exception uh, to represent the general. Um, yeah. In the same way that they used to say, gay men, they're all, all paedophiles, because there was one case that they could hold up, or a few cases of men who were attracted to young boys. No, they were paedophiles. <laughs> um, uh, and, it's, and, and it's that, that they, it is the misrepresentation 
of uh, minorities that is so dangerous. Um, so going back to the time when, um, so you were born in, you're London born and bred, um, or London raised. Um, you were, so 1950s um, uh, when you were born, or the 1950s, sorry, not the mm. 1950s. <laughs> so obviously when you were sort of in your formative years, in your teenage years, and you started to um, probably think about the fact that you found men attractive rather than, or men and women, or you, you sort of came to that conclusion yourself. What was it like in that era for you to, I presume you didn't, you couldn't come out to family friends at that time or? Well, I, I knew I was attracted to uh, boys, uh, <clears throat> some of the older boys and boys of my own age when I was about seven or eight yeah. um, and, um, and, and got on with it. And, and, and it's it, it, because it, it, it was the most natural thing in the world for me to, fancy guys uh, and it's it, it's later that you learn guilt it's later that you're told boys don't do that yes uh, <laughs> it's you're informed at your earliest age oh have you got a girlfriend um and so so i knew once i knew that it was frowned on um i knew i had to hide it um it, uh, and certainly as a, as a um when I then went into uh, my secondary modern school, where it was like a war zone in the East End of London. I mean, the East End was an incredible place to live. The docks, we lived right on the edge of the docks. It was thriving, it was exciting. The, the, the energy that was here and the mischief that you could get up to. And the rule was, get up to whatever you want, but don't get caught. And, uh, <laughs> and I got up to a lot, but um, for me, what changed my life was, you know, I, I didn't know it was illegal. Um, I knew it was wrong. But when I was discovered uh, by a talent scout and I ended up in Oliver in the West End at the age of 12 years old, and I was in a world where I could belong, where I could be me, where there were other boys who fancied other boys. And, we, and, it, and I remember my dad said, when the talent scout said about me auditioning, my dad said to my mum, I don't want him going in show business, it's full of queers. <laughs> and inside my little head, I went, yes, I want to be there. And, and I mean it seriously because I, 40 minutes to an hour on that bus, arriving at the east end of the Strand, seeing the lights of the theatres coming towards me, and I was in a world where I felt so at ease, where I could be myself, and it was incredible. Um, and, and then, as a young actor, um, you know, the, the age of consent uh, came in uh, in 1967. I was 16 years old. I was going to gay bars, going to gay clubs. Uh, which a friend had introduced me to this amazing world that existed only in in the darkness of night and always had to remain there because it was another world um, and I had my first relationship with um, long-term relationship which lasted for nine years with Lee who was eight years older than me and I chased him down till I got him <laughs> and um, and when we moved in together, he spelt it out to me. He said, we, we have to pretend to be cousins. There always has to be two single beds or two bedrooms. Um, and that was the way we were for most of our time together. Um, so that was the, that's, uh, the 1967 Homosexual Act, I think it was called, wasn't it? Where yes. You could, it, it stopped being illegal, but you couldn't live together and you couldn't be found to be in the same bed together. Is that well, or you, under the same you, house? You, you could live together. It was the partial decriminalization, which meant that you both uh, men that didn't, it didn't deal with women. Both men had to be uh, 21 years or over uh, and in a private, in a private residence, which meant if they were staying in somebody else's house, it would be illegal in a hotel, it would be illegal. 
But equally, Ian, it was illegal to even try to meet another uh, gay man. If you, uh, if you tried to pick someone up on the street, that was called uh, soliciting for an immoral purpose or, or importuning, and people were arrested. And interestingly, after the partial decriminalization in 1967, the arrests actually went up. They didn't decrease, they went up right the way into the, uh, the, the mid-1990s. Um, uh, because we were seen as an easy way of, um, uh, of bumping up your success numbers for police constabularies. Look at the number of arrests that, that we've made. Um, and in LGBT History Month of last February, you know, I remarked that for most of my life, we, we didn't have LGBT History Month. Um, our history was only recorded in the darker pages of uh, the scandal sheets and the tabloids. Um, so um, so, so there, there's been some wonderful changes, but it's, it's very important to remember what we had to overcome and the effect that it had on many lives. Well, you've obviously, you've had your um, moments in the tabloid press with when, particularly um, with EastEnders, um, obviously, you played Colin in EastEnders and you were involved in the first um, gay kiss, um, which when I was doing research, um, I thought it was a proper sort of lip on lip kiss. It was a kiss on the forehead. Yep. Which is like, really? Oh, I tell you, when, <laughs> no, 19, uh, 1986, I went into the show. Uh, I met Paul in 1983. Uh, interestingly, Barbara Windsor introduced us. We were both working up there in Scarborough. And, uh, you know, he, he was 19, below the age of consent. But um, when I went into that show, uh, AIDS and HIV was at its peak. It was depicted in the tabloids as, I quote, the gay plague. Yes. And, um, and all sorts of stories, you could catch it by sitting next to a gay man or, or a chair where a gay man had sat, etc., etc. Um, but when I went into the show, there were questions in Parliament as to why a gay character was going into a family show, given that AIDS and HIV was, quote, swirling around the country. Then when we had the kiss, my God, the, the tabloids blew a gasket. Moral campaigners again, wrote into the BBC. Was that Mary Whitehouse? Mary Whitehouse, <laughs> um, so-called moral campaigner. And, and there were, in Parliament, they said, these characters must be taken out of the show or the show must be axed. Um, and it was a peck on the forehead. But there are some one, when I look now at the writing, there's some amazing writing there. There's a beautiful scene between Colin, my character, and Barry, played by Gary Hales, where Gary's worried about AIDS and HIV. And, and it's just the two of them uh, holding hands, Colin kissing um, Barry's hands and his wrist and reassuring him and talking. It's, it's so loving. It's incredible. Um, and we, 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 we broke the sound barrier with, with the depiction of these men, uh, Colin and Barry, they were in uh, an illegal relationship because Colin, uh, you know, Barry was below the age of uh, consent. I thought, I think Barry was 20 when they got together. Um, uh, uh, and so that, that and the kiss and the depiction, they, they were groundbreaking. But, but equally, the lip on lip kiss um, in 19... 88, which in comparison to the first peck on the forehead was a bit of a whimper, the reaction, which, which showed that if, if you were consistent in your approach to character and story, then people took it on because they were interested in the characters, they were interested in the story. See, I think now that my first proper view of a of a gay person's life was queer as folk. That was my first on TV. That was the first thing I watched. I watched it in bedroom on the TV late at night, sound down, not watching it, but then I'll oh, watch it. And it was that first look and it was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. 
And I remember the controversy around that at the time. Um, but now you have It's a Sin, which has just finished, which was just phenomenally good. Um, cried my eyes out at that. Um, but the depiction of the, the gay sex in that show was a lot more, not graphic, but was a lot more suggestive, was, showed a lot more. Um, but there was hardly a, hardly a, a whimper of, a, a, of controversy surrounding it because everyone was, I think, I'm hoping that people have moved on. I think there's still an undercurrent mm-hmm. of, of that homophobia. But I think now you've got Hollyoaks has gay couples in there without any issues and stuff like that. It's, we've definitely moved on from your first gay kiss of a kiss on the forehead. Mm. But, but we, we, we've moved on because of, the, because of the work that was done during that, that very difficult time. Um, and that people are now open they they're doctors uh, are lesbian gay bisexual maybe trans it's because our lives are no longer as hidden or as secret as they as they had to be we are a part of the normal fabric of daily life um and the country is better for it people are better for it and so therefore when it happens on screen, it is a part of the life we live. But the writing uh, of Russell T. Davis is incredible. I mean, queer as folk, cucumber, and then completely. Uh, uh, I, I, I haven't really seen such beautiful writing as, as in uh, It's a Sin. Uh, and what is wonderful about the writing is we know he's taking us on a journey that is going to end sadly it doesn't end badly far from it um and uh, and looking back again as i said earlier it's a powerful reminder of what we lived through and what people did to us and our community and how we rallied and supported one another and actually with that anti-gay law that came in in 1988 and aids and hiv the combination of the two together I believe made our community and our allies, and I cannot, I cannot underline that too often, our allies, that we came back and we thought, you want to fight? We'll give you a bloody fight. We lost the battle for section 28, as it was called, it became law, but then we set, set out to win the war for equality and we're still doing it, we're nearly there. But there are some worrying signs at the moment. But we, um, yeah, we've learned incredibly through from those dark years, which is why we we needed to revisit them. With it's a sin. I thought I, I don't think I've ever. I don't cry a lot at TV and film. I don't think I've ever cried so much at a program than the final episode of It's a Sin, mm. particularly that bit on the beach. I won't spoil it if people haven't watched it. I think almost everyone has, but that bit on the beach where she tells, oh, no. it's just, and it's that silence that comes straight after it. And it just, I was sat, I was sat there watching it and it's literally, it was like, Oh my God, no, that it, it was just like sucker punch in the chest. And then it, that was it. I was gone. <laughs> gone, I, gone. I had exactly the same reaction. I, 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 I sat there and I went, no, literally it, involuntarily. It came out. But, but I didn't get upset. I, I had a, m- a moment of when the pit of your stomach drops and then the anger that I felt that somebody could do that. Um, and, uh, and that's why the writing is so remarkable, so beautiful. Do you think that... Um, did your your interest in politics and your interest in activism and your interest in, in justice and fighting for people's rights, do you think that was hardened and developed because you were a, a gay man living through that era where you were it was illegal for you to be gay, it was illegal for you to do this, illegal for you to have sex with men? Did that spur you on and give you the, the fire to think, do you know what, I, I need to change this? I... Being absolutely honest, I, I don't know. But what I do know um, it is that I've always been moved by injustice. I've always found it 
deeply, deeply hurting. Um, and, and we were brought up, you know, me and my three brothers on that housing estate in, council estate in Limehouse, brought up when it was tough. But you, do, you didn't know it was tough because you had nothing to compare it to. Um, but, but I, you know, I joined the Labour Party in my mid-twenties. Um, uh, and uh, used to go out and help, you know, deliver leaflets and that kind of thing. But I never thought I'd go into politics. I never thought I'd go into activism. Other people did that. People who went to university. I didn't complete my education. I left school, really, at the age of 12. Um, and so I came to my activism uh, through um, a sense of outrage that... Um, what was happening during the miners' strike? Um, Paul and I, we had our, uh, he was as, as political as me, he came from a mining community. We had our phone tapped um, during the miners' uh, strike. Then with AIDS and HIV, uh, seeing what was happening, seeing bars and clubs where we could take refuge to become ourselves, we could take refuge no more because death was in the corner. Um, and what completely committed me was when Margaret Thatcher brought in that anti-gay law, anti-lesbian and gay law, hitting a community that was living with AIDS and HIV. It needed supporting, it didn't need suffocating. Yeah. And that was when I went on that march and got involved in the campaign and then after, the law went through i said to ian come on we we've worked well together we've got to set up an organization to make sure another section 28 never happens again and that's what we started to do we we started to form stonewall uh, and launched it uh, a year later in uh, 1989 may 1989 and i found that my passion was was going into my politics into equality. I'd found my voice, like that young boy who went into Oliver and found a space where he could become himself. I found a new space and with it, I found a voice that I wanted to use to speak out against the injustices and the horrors that they were visiting upon ordinary women and men because we happened to have uh, a different sexual choice of partner. See, I, I, I obviously know of Section 28, um, and it was I was born in 78, so it would, it would have affected my schooling because it was um, introduced in there and they, they couldn't teach homosexual practices in, or not homose homosexual life in, in schools. Um, That's right. It was, it, sorry, I, for, for people uh, listening, I should have said Section 28, um, said a local authority shall not promote homosexuality. Yes. Um, uh, and should not certainly do so in a, uh, a, a maintained school, nor the acceptability of homosexual relations as pretend family relations. They didn't, it was, it, if only you could promote uh, uh, a sexuality. Um, you know, I live in a predominantly uh, heterosexual world. Uh, it hasn't been very good at promoting itself on me um, and, uh, uh, and, and as I pointed out to someone, if you suggest that really uh, you can promote someone into homosexuality, you're inferring uh, that heterosexuality is rather fragile and a phase that you're going through. Um, absolute nonsense. It was, um, it, it was pandering to the political right wing of the Conservative Party at the time, and, uh, uh, and it shouldn't have happened. I, I always, when people sort of say, oh, when did you decide, not, when did you decide you were gay? So, oh, I didn't decide I was gay. I, when did you decide you were straight? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So there you go. And the other thing, you know, oh, you, you've never tried it. <laughs> well, yeah, have you tried it? Um, and um, but, yeah, my, my partner, Paul, who I was with for 31 years when I first met him, he dated women um, uh, and... Um, had a bit of a rep reputation in, in, in his town, um, but he found himself. He, he, he and I in our early years, first of all, I, I pushed him away. I thought, no, someone has 
wonderful as this can't love me and if he does love me then he'll hurt me um and he couldn't believe that that i failed to understand how much he loved me uh, and and a lot of that is also ian i think when you're you're brought up being told that what you feel is bad and wrong and that's the other lovely thing about russell t davis um writing in it's a sin every so often the words would come up where the boys would say mummy I, I didn't do anything bad i didn't do anything to be ashamed of anything dirty those three words mm. kept popping up every so often reminding us what negativity enforced negativity can do to um some beautiful lives yeah no exactly um so stonewall is um i watched um because obviously there's the, the stonewall riots um in america um and i watched the film that's been that was done from that which is just brilliant it's such a, a quality film um and then obviously on on this side um going back slightly with the minor strike we had the pride marching mm. uh, and they they allied themselves with the the, the, the miners um, and fundraised for them. Um, and then the miners came on to the first Pride event, I believe, first Pride march. Um, so Stonewall was was set up um, and it's still going now and it's still a, a force for, for sort of gay rights and, 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 and all that encompasses. Um, has it sort of, are you still a, a member of Stonewall? Are you still on the... So on the board or have you moved on from that now no i i um you're, you're right about that history of um uh, lgbt people involving themselves in other struggles and um uh it wasn't it was the first pride march for the miners and there's a brilliant bit in the film for those who haven't seen it that I, I won't spoil it but they should see it when the miners arrive for the pride march um but when we set up stonewall one of its strengths before I answer the question is that uh, we decided that it would have an equal number of women and men because up until that time lesbians and gay men had never really worked together that well they pitted against one another and um, and so we formed the organization I was the founding chair but I knew after I think it was about six years that I had to let go I had to get out because I was facing, uh, again, I, I deal with all of the, the, these things in the book, but I, I, I was facing burnout, being burnt out and feeling that I was resenting it, but not wanting anybody else to do it. And I thought, I've got to get out, I've got to let go, otherwise I become uh, dangerous to the organization and the organization's development. And that's exactly what I did. And uh, the manner in which I announced it was quite, <laughs> quite amusing. But um, having the courage to let go is really important, especially as a founder, because if you're lucky, it then grows beyond your wildest dreams. And what I do uh, remember is those early years, the opposition we had to Stonewall, the opposition we had from some LGB activists who believed we shouldn't be doing it. Who, who were you? You're self-serving, self-electing. And I said, yes, absolutely right. We're after equality. If people want to opt out of equality, absolutely fine. Um, and somebody said to me that Stonewall's going through a hard and difficult time at the moment. And I said, it always has. Campaigning organizations always have difficult periods because what they're campaigning for others want to resist yeah and that's why you campaign and you stick at it and i'm proud of the organization i'm proud of what it's achieved and i'm proud that it wants to do more um so my um my my partner colin um has an autograph for of you uh from you um i met you um at a nightclub in stoke-on-trent called the excalibur in, where i sang in the 1980s yes and he because his name's colin and he he came up to you and sort of went hello i'm colin and you went ah another one um and he said he remembers you you talking about um i think about section 28 at the time um, and we try to find, we can't find the autograph, it is somewhere. Um, 
it sounds bad it's not on the wall um <laughs> it's not framed on the wall um but he he remembers you from obviously from the 1980s um so what was what 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 strikes a fire in you, in you to to go out and campaign and and to to face that resistance that you undoubtedly get on whatever issue you're campaigning on somebody will be do you know what will be against you do you, do you sort of really enjoy that almost fight but in a in a political way i i i get no enjoyment whatsoever i i i face the fear i face the uh, bouts of lack a lack of confidence uh, that i'm going to screw it all up um when i met colin in um in stoke-on-trent um Interestingly, an area that I went on to represent in the European Parliament, representing uh, the West Midlands, uh, I was still acting, and I think I was moving out of acting into uh, into uh, activism. Um, but but what fires me up is is that it's wrong to deny people equal protection of the law. Um, it undermines law, it undermines our right to call ourselves civilized. Um, and, I, uh, and I see it now being done across other parts of the world where it shouldn't, because our rights should travel with us. They should be universal, they're universal human rights. Um, and when I see it being done, to trans women and trans men and trans teenagers who merely want to lead their lives, get on with their lives, be themselves, harming no one. I just don't understand. And it's that. It's turning that anger into a force for positive change. Um, and I'm lucky in that I've been doing it in the House of Lords over the last few years so that I've got the government to move forward, widening uh, pardons and disregards. They're now taking it in the Armed Services Bill to Army personnel and um, members of the Royal Marines who weren't previously covered. And then it's my in intention through another piece of uh, legislation I got through uh, to deal with what we call historical convictions, um, which remain on people's uh, record and prevent them getting certain types of employment for a, a crime that isn't a crime now and shouldn't have been a crime then. Um, so it's turning, always turning the anger into something positive. But I do doubt myself, but I've come to the conclusion that in public life and certainly in politics, that's a good thing. Um, the House of Lords is very much, a lot of people don't understand what the House of Lords is. They see it as a, a bunch of people not elected, don't do a lot, sit there, have a bit of a natter, fall asleep sometimes. Um, claim their daily allowance. Yeah, yeah walk in, claim it, go back out again. Um, but it does play an important part because it is like a, a safety buffer between what the government wants to do and what the government should be allowed to do. Um, so you've been in the House of Lords since uh, 2014, I believe. That's right. I went in four days after... Paul died on the 28th of October. And what, what was that like walking? I've been in the House of Lords. We had a tour um, and no, neither house was sitting. So we actually went into the House of Lords and it's tiny uh, <laughs> compared to what you think it's going to be. It's a really small, small place. Um, but what was it like when you got the, got the phone call that you were going to be made a Lord and then your first time in the House of Lords? Was it like, what am I doing? <laughs> well, I... I it's in the book, so I won't give it away, but I will uh, say, say there, tell listeners this, that um, uh, Paul and I were in New York, um, uh, a place that we loved to go. And uh, we were off there to see Ian McKellen in, on Broadway. And then uh, my phone rang, the mobile, and it, uh, and it was uh, the leader of the Labour Party's uh, political assistant i thought now they know i'm away this must be serious and that's when i got the call that's <laughs> when i was told that they wanted to put me in they were putting three people in um 
going in just after Paul died was incredible. I've never known such kindness, uh, such warmth. Uh, everyone, everyone was so brilliantly supportive. And there's a, there's a moment, again, that I record in the book where, where I, I'm stood there in my fake ermine, just about to take the oath. And you see it, oh, there's a video of it. And I, um, and I look up and there in the gallery, there's Barbara Windsor and Ian McKellen and June Brown and uh, Michelle Collins, all of my friends and my family. And the one face that isn't there is Paul. And then suddenly I think of him and this amazing smile breaks out on my face. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect about working there. But because I worked in the, uh, the European Parliament for 15 years, it's not dissimilar, Ian, in that you have to work cross-party yeah. because no one party has a majority. So unless you work, you work cross-party, you won't get anything done. It's great that it's not elected, and I'll tell you why. Because it has an independence. Yes, it needs reform. Uh, I think it should be part of the House should be appointed uh, and the other part of the House should be indirectly elected. So that means, let's say you're the leader of Stoke-on-Trent Council. That means for a duration of, of your, your time in office and after you get to serve in the House of Lords because independence is crucial. You've got to do what you believe to be right, not looking over your shoulder or whether you're going to get re-elected because of it. Because what we do in the Lords is we revise the legislation. And then we send it back to the House of Commons to consider. It will then come back to us, and if we're so minded, we'll send it back again. But finally, the last say is with the House of Commons. We've done some things I'm really, really proud of. Um, and one in particular, you know, we've, we've improved the law. You couldn't pay for the work that some of the law lords do on legislation. But I remember we had a fight with the government, uh, David Cameron's uh, government and George Osborne, when he, they wanted to make four billion pounds of cuts to the poorest in society. It always seems to be the way, doesn't it? It's always I, the, the poor that seem to bear the brunt. Now, now interestingly, the, because the government wanted to get it through quickly, they didn't ch choose a finance bill. If they'd chosen a finance bill, the House of Lords can't touch it. They chose something else. We could. We amended it. We sent it back minus the four billion cuts. We were told that if we did that, we would lose our privileges. And one senior lord said, I can think of no better way to lose privilege than by standing up for those who have none. And we sent it back and the government thought again and got rid of those cuts. Equally, me working on this uh, piece of legislation, widening the, conviction, the, uh, the disregards uh, of convictions and pardons, uh, again, coming out of the House of Lords, uh, and we do some pretty amazing and crucial stuff, particularly when legislation can get rushed through from the House of Commons. Uh, and, and you and Colin uh, should come and visit it uh, when it's uh, sitting. Post-COVID times, uh, I'll, I'll show you around and um, who knows, I might even be able to get some money together for a, a glass of wine. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, uh, right, sorry, I've just got my tick list of stuff I wanted to... Do, 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 do. Where are we? Do you want me to be quicker with the answers? Uh, no, 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 this, I, I like... This is a whole idea of this, is to get it... Just let people... Um, to give the answers that they want to give. It's um, nothing worse when someone's given an answer and someone goes, eh, da, da. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you stop? I need to... <laughs> um, out every Monday, join me, Ian Barstow, Damien Lee and Darren Anchibus for three men and a microphone where you can hear stuff like this. You're not the person on your profile picture. <laughs> so how did online dating go with you? Did you go, did you wear red? <laughs> and I held roses underneath the clock. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs>
That's a talent. If you can hold him with you, uh, <laughs> say are, are, with you. are they thornless? <laughs> Don't want them sticking in. Um, we'll have I'm more. I'm an 80s child. I don't have that problem. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, you've had the slip, have you? Oh. We'll chop that bit out. <laughs> no, we won't. Subscribe now on all podcast apps or search Three Men and a Microphone. Because obviously at Drag Race UK, um, I love Drag Race UK. I think it's wonderful. Um, and we're thinking of doing, I've always wanted to try drag um, in the, the proper full makeup, big hair, all of that. Damien, straight as anything, but loves, is camp as anything, but he wants to do it. And we've now persuaded Darren, who I think is going to have nightmares about it to do it as well. So, uh, yeah, we are going to try and do that in some event. Because the great thing about an actor, you know, an actor's life, um, is that you get paid to wear makeup, dress up and go on stage. Um, And uh, you probably never saw Ian McKellen do drag as Widow Twanky. Oh, it ranks as the best. And when he comes on in tight white lycra, um, in, in drag uh, as Widow Twanky, a sight to behold. <laughs> I think some of those drag artists on Drag Race UK are just like, they are amazing. They look stunning. Absolutely I stunning. I, I used to, a drag artist I knew in the 60s. Um, he was character drag. Um, Mrs. Shufflewick, and, uh, and, and, and he was like a, an old cockney cleaner. And, 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 and they, you know, you, you think now some of them have to, you know, go to bed made up because they wouldn't have enough time to wake up and get made up. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like a work of art. Um, but no, I, I, I prefer the, <clears throat> the character drag, Auntie Flo at the Black Cap. Uh, Mrs. Shufflewick. Oh, I, I was my first ever drag experience was when I went to my first ever gay bar in Blackpool, um, and we went to um, Stella Artois. Um, oh yes, in Blackpool, and uh, I just as soon as I walked in, and just I was like, oh my god, that's just amazing, because you can get away with so much more when you've got a frock and a big wig on. Was was that at um, uh, Basil's? Uh, or, or the yeah, um, he, the one on the front, the lady. Uh, well, what funny girls, not no. Yeah. It was um, it's just so funny girls is sort of there, and it's yeah. down, and you go down underneath the. I think it was an Iceland or something like that. Um, but th- they sold it, and it just went. The, the whole place, the whole scene seems to have changed a little bit now. It seems very. I, I don't know. It's even in the short time I've been going to out to clubs and that, it's like. It just seems full of hen nights. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, go, go and have your own place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leave this to us. So obviously you, um, you were in the House of Lords during the whole of the Brexit debacle. Um, and, the very, and it was a very tense time. And it was very, but what was that like in, from inside, inside the Lords and inside Parliament and inside the Westminster? Because from the outside, it felt like a proper not a nice time to be a, a, a person working in that building, be it an MP or a Lord, because there was so much anger from, and, and, and just venom from both sides. You're right. It was nasty. It was vicious. Uh, and, and it was neither house uh, covered uh, themselves in glory. Um, and what was galling, somebody like me was to witness lies being recorded as uh, facts when they clearly were not. Um, Fighting to retain um, certain elements of EU law to protect children in divorce cases between um, uh, the custody rights between uh, EU nationals married to someone from the the UK. trying to defend the, and keep the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which gives certain rights to British people that don't ordinarily arise in other conventions. The government lying and saying those rights are covered elsewhere, whereas at least two are not. And actually, when challenging 
for human rights or defending human rights, you need more conventions to refer to, not fewer. Uh, the fact that people were going to lose freedom of movement um, and, uh, uh, and that people who'd lived here for decades, other EU nationals, sometimes in mixed marriages, suddenly facing the possibility that they and their families were no longer going to be uh, welcome. Uh, it was pretty depressing. I haven't given up on Europe. The anti-EUers didn't give up after the referendum of 1975. Um, and so I will campaign and do what I can to put the case for being members of the European Union. We could have made it so much easier. We could have united the country uh, instead of uh, perpetuating the division, which I believe we have with this uh, EU withdrawal agreement. Do you think we're, I think because of COVID, we've not felt the impact as much as we would have done in a normal time since we've left the EU? Because I think... A lot of people will feel it the first time they go abroad on holiday and they will suddenly realise what that freedom of movement from like a, an everyday purpose, that, what that feels like. Do you think we're, we're, we're nowhere near knowing what the true, the true impact of, of Brexit is on us? And do you mm. think that in 10 years' time we'll probably be at the point where people will go, actually, do you know, that was a, or 20 years' time, that was a massive mistake. Let's see if we can join in some way or another again? Well, I'm obviously going to say this. <laughs> but, but I, I think people will believe it was a massive mistake. You don't become stronger by isolation. Um, you know, my example is, uh, it's a union. If, as an actor, I joined Equity, the Actors' Union, so that we could put, put our clout together to achieve much, much more by negotiating together than having to pit one actor against another. Always working on improving terms and conditions. Of course, there are actors, taking that example, who their box office, they'll, they'll get what they want. But actually, by serving the most, you achieve more by coming together using your, your clout. I think COVID, um, the restrictions that we've uh, we've dealt with in terms of travel, COVID has prevented us from seeing the real impact uh, of leaving the European Union, not only in terms of uh, freedom of movement, uh, but uh, freedom freedom of um, uh, of goods from from tariffs. We're seeing tariffs being placed on things where people order them over the internet. They come in from a, a and let's say a, a site in uh, Dusseldorf, um, and uh, suddenly you have to pay a tariff. People in Northern Ireland are seeing part of the impact. Uh, I have certainly noticed uh, in the uh, the supermarkets that the the price of food uh, has gone up considerably, and the shelves are not as packed as well packed as they used to be. Uh, but I, I hope we come through this and make a positive decision about Europe, not based on solely our needs, but based on our aspirations also about the kind of outward-looking country that we want to be. Um, so Michael's book, um, one of them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, is out now in paperback at all good bookshops. Um, independent bookshops, support your independent bookshops. Mm. And it's uh, also in all, all naughty bookshops as well. No. I remember the first time I went to, um, first time I went to London and went to Soho. Um, I was quite late coming out. I was 30. Um, so I did it all in sort of like a very short space of time, I went to my first gay bar, I went to my first Pride, I went to Soho in London, and walking into those shops, and you sort of walk around and you're like, ah. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, Ian, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I went to Soho when I was 12 years old. You know, it was around the corner from, um, from the theatre that I worked in in 1963. So, my God, I saw it every single working day of the week for me. I missed, I, I think I missed, I, I always imagine a, um, a, a gay club as being, um, how am I going to put this, quite, 
quite dingy and dark and sort of intimate and full of smoke and full of all of that sort of thing. I went when it's all quite polished <laughs> and yeah. it's all quite family friendly and that sort of thing. And it's but like, I think I've missed that. <laughs> I'll have to read my book to get the descriptions of what those bars were like in, <laughs> in the, in the sixties, traveling around the country on tour and then coming back to London and going to the first gay coffee dance bar. Oh, oh wonderful. <laughs> I've I've heard my my partner uh, Colin is is older is eighteen years older than me so I've um he's I've heard a lot of stories <laughs> about what it used to be like that's for certain. <laughs> uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the interviews um, and and for being here. It's it's been a, a great pleasure and, and a really good discussion and, and interview. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. I've re really enjoyed it. It's been a it's been a chat. It's not been an, an interview. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for the first episode of the interview. Thank you so much to Lord Michael Cashman for his time. A really good interview and discussion. I hope you agree. If you want to find out more about the podcast, head over to thestreammedia.co.uk and follow the links on there. And we will be back again next Friday with an episode with Darren Antrobus speaking to the social media sensation, The Bold Builders. So click on that follow and subscribe button right now to never miss an episode of The Interviews. The Interviews is a These Three Media production. Everybody, everybody, everybody.